Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm excited about the day, as I always am. I get ready as I prepare for you, and I'm thinking, well, I wonder what the listening audience will like today. Well, it's Thursday, and that's Guy Talk. That's how we get things started. And I invite your questions, your comments, whatever it is you'd like the power panel to ad- to address. Let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Power panel today so far is Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner claims he's on his way. He's coming in from golf, so he's probably going to be in a bad mood. Uh, but anyway, uh, Justin Jepson is not going to be reaching uh, us today, but he's uh, sending his best wishes. So that's going to be the power panel today. I'm looking at a great quote by C.H. Spurgeon. I think you'll like this. And it, he says, fear to die? Thank God I do not. The cholera may come again next summer. Pray it may not. But if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. C.H. Spurgeon. What a great great line. Amen. Wonderful. Gentlemen, welcome. Yeah. Good to be with you. Good good to have you here. And uh, let's start with this great um, passage from Philippians where Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What does that really mean? Since uh, I've never I've never met a believer who can do all things. <laughs> you go first, Tom. Well, it, the passage is absolutely true. With the power of Jesus, there is nothing we cannot do. The problem for most believers is that we don't understand we're to do these things corporately, not just individually, and that's where we have the church. And so. I see a lot of individual Christians trying desperately to pray over people, heal the sick, uh, do a variety of things. But there's much greater power when we do it together. And there's not enough of that that goes on. Where I have seen that happen is overseas. When I was in Bangladesh, I watched the Christians there when they had to deal with something along this line, whether it was demonic, whether it was healing, whether it was even persecution. Uh, They immediately gathered they didn't think about dealing with it on their own. They immediately gathered and came together in prayer. And they didn't pray for an hour. <laughs> they prayed all night and they prayed for days, depending on what it was. And our Western culture, I don't know anybody that's prayed for days. You know, I mean, I prayed overnight once, uh, but that's not the normal thing we do in the West. Unfortunately, we don't see much of the power either. And I think it is a combination of the truth of the word, the power of Jesus, but he wants to flow through his people, not just through individuals, although... At times, he does use individuals, and I've seen some incredible things happen, but I find they happen much more often when I'm involved with other Christians. Mm -hmm. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's true. Problem is, there are times I don't want to, (laughs) or I just don't out of laziness or sinfulness or whatever. It's always true that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but it's not always true that I take advantage of that. Right. I'm in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life 
in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So when you, a new believer might read that, how do you put that in context? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Is that, well, does we, that talk about a complete surrender? Well, we know in the early years of the church, part of the accusation against Christians in Rome was that they were cannibals. And they kind of picked it up from this yeah. text. They were not cannibals, of course. But when we understand that Jesus is the new covenant and the new sacrifice for sin, what was the sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament? You know, be a heifer or a lamb or whatever that may be. So the animal had to die. The food was then distributed and eaten. The priest got it first, then it went to the people. But that was the normal way of atoning for sin. Jesus doesn't see himself any different in the new covenant as the old covenant, except his sacrifice was once and for all. So uh, I think explaining it to people, uh, we're not talking about cannibalism, we're not cannibalism, we're not talking about that type of thing. But we truly, when we receive his body and blood in communion, what he did on that night before he was crucified, he really gave himself to us. It wasn't just a nice theological, I love you, good luck, you know, I'll pray things go well for you. He said, I'm really going to lay down my life for you. Mm -hmm. And in my life, there are very few people that I could really turn to that I believe would lay down their life for me. But my whole faith is built on what Jesus has done. When Jesus said, he who eats my body and drinks my blood, um, um, uh, that abides in me and I in him, and that no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And that, I, I think what he means by that is his death on the cross, when we partake of that through faith, we're eating his body, uh, drinking his blood. But I do think it's awfully hard to read that text. What is that, John 6? Mm-hmm. It's awfully hard to read that without thinking of Holy Communion. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have his life within you. Mm-hmm. And that makes me worried for people who think they can be Christians without the church, without fellowship, without communion. And I think you lose the life if you uh, cut yourself off from from the church and from Holy Communion. So I, I love taking communion. Mm-hmm. It's just... I, it, it, and I love the song. You know the song that's based on that text? I am the bread of life. You've, it's just so wonderful to be in the body of believers and take communion with people. Right. And I feel bad for people and kind of scared for them if they think they don't need that. What's scary? Such a tease when you sing, Tom. You yes, like, it is. You love it? Well, I don't love it, but I, <laughs> but I like it. I like it Whoa, very much. Ouch. It's no, good, Tom. don't take it personally. <laughs> you didn't fully commit. You just hummed oh, okay. a little. Okay. You okay. Would you like the whole song? Up. No. Yeah. Well, someone's joined us here. Yeah, Who is this Peter guy? Kaffner Peter, has welcome. Just joined us, and Peter, welcome. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Well, I said you were coming right from the golf course, so you might be in a bad mood. Yeah, you were definitely prophetic with that. No, there's no <laughs> question about that. Just not at all happy to be here, i got to tell you. You might want to plug that in. It might be oh, more sure, yeah. And, and, and that's what you do with headphones. Plug in the headphones, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if people could see, we have one lovely Rebecca. She does the soundboard. Four men are in the studio infecting each other. Mm-hmm. Three of them are bald, and one has a full head of hair. Yeah. That's you, Tom. Thank you. Yep. All right. Here's a question from uh, my wingman, Terry. Jesus instructs us to pray in his name. Is there a difference in praying to him directly in times of deep suffering? I've cried out to Jesus instinctively without thinking about it. My situation might not have changed, but I did feel he heard me and I was comforted. Should we pray to Jesus fortright or to God the Father in his name? That's a great question. Yeah. That's a great question. Can I give you an answer to that one? I'll follow up. The norm is you pray to God the Father and you close your prayer in Jesus' name. 
There are instances in the New Testament where people pray to Jesus directly. Uh, while Stephen was dying, he's, you know, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So you can pray to Jesus directly, but the norm is you pray to God the Father and you close the prayer in Jesus' name. Yep, I've heard that theology. And I... <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, it's only the New Testament. <laughs> well, also in the New Testament, Jesus, when he talks about praying in my name, we're not just closing the, the prayer by tapping his name on at the end. We're praying in his authority. Mm -hmm. We're praying in his presence. And it's pretty hard among Christians. Um, you know, we, we're Trinitarians, and we know of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But when you get deeply into the New Testament and then through the Old Testament, you begin to see the emergence of Jesus over and over and over. Jesus is the visible presence. And so to Philip, Philip said, hey, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough. What did Philip say? What did Jesus say? Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no separation of the two, so I don't think that there is any issue of praying directly to Jesus. No, I think it's fine. Or any problem there at all. I think it is simply understanding that when you do, he is part of the Trinity. Do you pray to the Holy Spirit? I think, well, I know people that call out, you know, on God the Holy Spirit to come help them in situations. And uh, that's the, the prayer of the church is come Holy Spirit. Spirit. And I do pray to the Holy Spirit. But not that often. No. And, and you know what's interesting? Unless you guys know something I don't, I don't know one place in the New Testament where it says they prayed to the Holy Spirit. Now, I could be wrong on that, but... You're looking at me? I'm, I'm looking like, at you. I'm Peter, having we're, a good time. We're you haven't talked, Peter. We're waiting for the definitive answer, well, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even carve out a middle way between the two of you. So, I, yeah, in terms of praying in Jesus' name, my understanding is is that you're you're acknowledging and invoking an authority that is within the name of Jesus. So when, when the word name is used in the scriptures, my understanding is is that you stand with that name, that there's an authority that is granted with your prayer as you come before the Father in that. To, to your question, Tom, I don't know of situations either where you pray specifically to the Spirit or anything along those lines. But I think you, I clearly pray that the Spirit would guide me. I'm right. not, you know, sort of almost an indirect prayer I relative pray, to the Spirit, I, I pray, right? I, mean, I pray now and then to the Holy Spirit. Holy sure. Spirit, fill me now and help me talk. You know, don't you ever do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have an illustration that I use. I just use it in some teaching of a, a stage. I used to be in plays. So I love to be in the place. I was even in musicals, Tom. You were? Yeah, they didn't let me sing, but I was in musicals. <laughs> I didn't vet you well enough. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think of it as a stage, and we're the audience out there, behind the stage, behind the curtains, is the, is the director, the producer. That's God the Father. We never see him. He's just back there. He is orchestrating everything that's going on in the theater. Up in the balcony, there's the Holy Spirit on the spotlight. He runs that spotlight because his job... The Holy Spirit's job is to put the spotlight on on the focus, and in the very middle of the stage is Jesus. Hmm. The New Testament teaches that way, that ultimately when you know Jesus, you know the Father and the Spirit. Without Jesus, there are a lot of people who believe in God the Father, but that's not salvation. No. You finally got to call out to the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. He is the one and only Savior. So the centrality of Jesus is the power. The problem is when we talk about the Father in Christianity, nobody's ever seen him. We have no visual of the Father in that traditional sense. We have only the, the visual of the uh, dove at Jesus' baptism for the Holy Spirit. Uh, most of us don't look out at doves all the time and think about the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, we have a very clear picture of over and over and over, and probably the most painted figure in history. So the focus is always on ultimately Jesus. 
And I think when you look back at the Old Testament, the, the father is always interacting face to face with some of the main characters that we read about in scripture. And, uh, and then it, the father moves with this sort of what's called the Shekinah into the temple behind the, the veil in the Holy of Holies. And at that point, the priest, uh, the high priest is the only one that can interact with the father. But the whole witness of the Old Testament is God the father interacting with and being with his people. And, and some of the difference that happens in the New Testament is Jesus, uh, the, the veil of that temple is torn in two at his crucifixion. And God begins to explode out among his people at Pentecost. And so in, instead of us coming to the temple and meeting face to face with God, we're now indwelt by the Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus, and thus we have constant interaction with the Father because that has all been made possible. And so just for our listeners, I just want to encourage them, make sure you go to a church that believes in the Trinity. Yeah, for sure. I got a uh, message yesterday, you know, Pastor Brock, there's a Assemblies of God Church. Is that Okay. I said, it is, but watch out for the United Pentecostals because they don't believe in the Trinity. Watch out for the Mormons. Watch out for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Watch out for Christian Science and also the Unity Church. Beware of the Unitarians. All of those groups deny the Trinity. So just make sure you're in a good biblical Trinitarian church. Nice. All right, let's take a little break. If you have a question, comment, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. We've got... We can also take a phone call today, too. If you are brave enough, let us know. 877-933-2484. Be right back. song the guy talk <laughs> we're so glad you're with us today if you have a question uh, let us know what it is 877-933-2484 the power panel is pastor tom brock tom parish and dr peter kapsner that's the team today we're awfully glad that we can be together and we're looking forward to hearing from you again 877-933-2484 in matthew 6 verse 33 it says but seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. How do we practically seek the kingdom of God in the year 2020? Not that it matters, but how do we do it? <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. No, I mean, it, it, we, we need to be doing it every year. Yes. From, from the minute we came in contact with God's word, we're yeah. doing it. Yeah. It just happens to be 2020. Yeah. Well, you look at each denomination. Each denomination has a particular focus that they found in the Bible, and that makes them unique and also stand apart from others. The problem is that one focus is not the kingdom of God. It's a part of the kingdom of God. And I think that most of us don't look at the Bible broadly enough to begin to incorporate all that Jesus wants from us in terms of living for him. So to seek the kingdom of God, to me, is not only to have the right theology and go to, to, go to a good church, which is important, or read the, the best translation of the Bible— but it's that so that kingdom gets inside of me and I start forgiving my enemies. I start treating people differently than I ever had before. I start looking out for the interests of others rather than just my own. And as you read the, the Spurgeon quote earlier, Bill, there becomes at a point no fear in dying because we know this isn't our home. We're here a short period of time. So the, the depth or the breadth of the kingdom of God is something that I wish every Christian could grab onto. The problem is I see most Christians, whatever brought them to Jesus— 
in the first place is what they seem to hang on to for the rest of their life. And there's nothing wrong in that sense of coming to Jesus. The problem is we don't seem to get much more maturity beyond that, and we need to mature into the fullness of Christ. And I think some of the context of that passage, too, gets into what you're talking about, Tom, uh, that idea that we belong to a different kind of kingdom, right? And and if you read the verses preceding verse uh, 33 of chapter 6, it's all about basically don't worry about what clothes you'll have. Don't worry That's about right. the food. Don't chase after those things as the pagans might, where they're trying to find life from the things of this world. Right. And then he says, instead of that, instead of pursuing the things of this world, seek first the kingdom of God to live within the rule and reign of God in, in this life. And what you need then will ultimately be provided for you. You yes. don't, uh, otherwise you can make it an idolatry of pursuing sure. the things of this world for your own sense of well-being. Give your well-being over to God. Don't you see how he even cares for the sparrows in the air? Don't you see how he cares um, for, for the lilies of the field is all of the context of that. So, of course, he's going to care for you. He knows all the hairs on your head. That's sort of the whole context of that passage. Right. I, I was going to say the same thing. The context is don't worry about what you put on or what you eat. Your father knows you need them. Right. But seek first his kingdom. And I can't help but think about my dad. Hmm. My dad went to church every Sunday. He was a Catholic. I, he was such a workaholic, and his life was so caught up in his job it's like he didn't have room or time to seek the kingdom of God. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Don't be so concerned about feeding your family and yourself and your clothing. Number one, get up in the morning and, and pray to God and seek him and have a deep relationship with him. Well, and I think it's one of the hardest things. to. I mean, I've lived in that fear, right? I'm sure that we all have, that the next day won't actually be provided for me. And so I've got to go put my nose to the grindstone again today. I've got five children at home. If I don't do my job, they won't get fed. And, and of course, we want to do our jobs well. But, boy, I have certainly lived in that fear that has then driven certain kinds of behaviors that can be like workaholism yeah. where you're like, I've just got to get ahead. I've got to mm-hmm. make it. And, boy, that is a, one of the greatest signs when I know I'm not seeking the kingdom, that I'm seeking the things of this world, is when I can't sleep at night anymore, when I'm up spinning at yeah. night and when yeah. I'm up spinning with worry. And, and that's just sort of a, a quick spiritual thermometer sort of thing to say, wait a second here. I think I'm looking at the things of this world to provide for me. And but if they take a look at the church today, I don't care what denomination you're looking at. You listen to most sermons. Uh, most teaching. Most of it is either on getting saved, which is a big one, Mm -hmm. which is appropriate, or it may be on living a faithful life. But we've got a lot of sermons on how to be a better husband, how to be a better father, how to be a better parent. And I'm not saying those are wrong, but in terms of pursuing the kingdom of God, I can't remember the last time, honestly, I heard a sermon that talked about pursuing the kingdom of God, as Jesus talked about here. What I hear about out of churches and the impression that I get from especially nominal believers— who have come out of church uh, after I retired and I'd be in another church and they'd come out and they say, all that pastor ever talks about is how big the church is and how much money we're giving. Right. And that that's what most people's impression is of the church. It is That's not even it at all. But that's what comes across. How do we talk about the kingdom? And, you know, if I can convict myself on this, what if I sought the Lord as quickly and frequently as I check my emails on my iPhone? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be, you know, saying... Augustine or something. I, and it's, it's uh, we need to really, I mean, I heard a little girl who said, of a little girl who said, I hate mommy's phone. Just because we can get so caught up in all these iPhones and laptops and everything, we not only forget our children, we forget our God. So we need to, I, I do pray regularly, Lord, help me be balanced in my use of the internet and such. All right, I've got Danielle, and I'm talking about the Danielle from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, on the line. She's got a question. Danielle, welcome. Thank you so much. 
Um, so my question is with anointing. So what is anointing? And um, also, I know that there's anointing with the Holy Spirit and then anointing oil. And then also, can you lose your anointing? Great question, Danielle. Thank you. That is a good question. Yeah, I I mean, I think one place where we see anointing taking shape in the very early church was right after believers would come out out of the waters of baptism, that uh, they would be confirmed at that point. Confirmation was very different than it is today, where you might go through a two-year process and then get confirmed at that point. You were confirmed right as you came out of the waters of baptism, and that confirmation was the anointing of the Spirit. And there was a recognition that something died, the natural man, the, the, the sinful man died in those waters of baptism. And when you came out of those waters, there was a leader of the church there with the oil that would anoint your head with oil. And it was the idea of a sealing uh, with the Spirit, meaning that your life is now being guided by the Spirit as opposed to the uh, guided by the things of this world or the flesh. So that's one place of anointing. Now, I know anointing is used in other ways, too, but there's an initial anointing like that of saying, you are now born again, you're born anew into a different way of life. And, and what is it, John? that says you are all anointed and you all know and you have no need of anyone to teach you anything because his anointing teaches you everything. So what you just said is right, though. There's various anointings. There's the anointing in the Old Testament to to become the king. Yep. And in the New Testament, James chapter 5, there's the anointing with oil if you're sick. Now, some people get carried away, and I I don't like to add something to Scripture. Right. And so I was going to go on a trip. Oh, Pastor Tom, can I anoint you for your trip? And I'm thinking, where's that in the Bible? I don't know of an anointing to take a trip. So I said, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I've heard it relative to a pastor as well. And I don't, I don't know how, I, I'm guessing that this is some of where Danielle's question might be coming from, is I know that there's a pastor uh, that I know of that had a very significant ministry for a very long period of time. And when this pastor spoke on the weekend, people would use that word. That was so anointed. Right. Or there was an anointing because there did seem to be an energy about it that just, power. you know, just ran through yeah. the congregation yeah. as this pastor spoke. And then I also know that that very same pastor at one point in time said, I don't believe that the scriptures are authoritative anymore. Oh. And after that, it was this sense in which all of a sudden the power that was behind the speaking seemed to dissipate among the congregation. Now, I don't know how to think about that or appropriate that, but people said that pastor must have lost the anointing because of the decisions that pastor made. Now, mm-hmm. Saul in the Old Testament clearly loses the, the spirit. He does. absolutely does. And, and whether that relates to what we're talking about, Saul, oh, for sure. It says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord. Right came upon it. Yeah, so I, and David I, I, had to play the heart to get the thing to leave. You know? Absolutely. Did you ever uh, do any long-distance running when you were younger? Heavens no. I don't run unless I'm chased. <laughs> <laughs> I had this experience once in my life, and I was running, and I got what they called the second wind. The second wind after I ran for oh, about right. five miles, then all of a sudden I got this burst of energy. If you think about anointing, as I look at it biblically, as power of the Lord. Mm. He can put his anointing on you at different times for different things, and that power comes along. That doesn't mean that power will always be there. It's usually there for a specific purpose at that time, whether it's anointing to be the king, whether it's anointing uh, the believers, whether it's anointing after baptism. But I would think that to continually seek the Lord's anointing and power, there's nothing wrong with that, so long as we're doing it for the building of the kingdom. Don't you want to say, as a believer, you always have the Holy Spirit, but you can can quench the Spirit. Well, there's a difference if you say that the anointing is only the anointing of the Holy Spirit for the first time. Then we've got a different topic. Okay, you guys can continue to talk after I (laughs) take this break. (laughs) You guys can talk away. Just try to shut us up. All right, Jim uh, is in Madison. He's got a question. We'll get right back to you when we come back from our break. If you have a question, you can call or text 877-933-2484. The Power Panel is here to take your questions. Be right back.
on Faith Radio. I hope your day is going well. I'm so glad you've joined um, me in the power panel today. Guy Talk is happening. Got some great questions coming in. I don't know if you had a chance to uh, fill out a survey. If you're like me, you don't like filling out surveys, but we are having one on the afternoon show with me. And if you would uh, text the word survey to 877-933-2484, it'll give you a chance to give us some valuable feedback because we really care about what you think and we want to make this show as best as we can and your input would be wonderful. And if you fill out the survey, I think it takes two or three minutes, you'll be put in a drawing for an Amazon gift card. So how cool is that? So again, you text the word SURVEY to 877-933-2484. I've got a list of about 20 uh, names of regular guests. I think three of the guests um, in the studio are on the list. So hmm. you guys... <laughs> I'm going to stifle my jokes. I'm not yeah. going to make those <laughs> jokes this week. Yeah. P-A-R-R-I-S-E. Uh, right. <laughs> so again, wow. you guys... Text the, text the word survey to 877-933-2484 if you want to fill out the survey. All right. Let's, uh, we've got Jim on the line from Madison, Wisconsin. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Of course. Um, I guess my short question is, what is the meaning of the word Messiah? And there's a little background behind that question, if I may. Please. Um Okay. Well, you know, I've asked that question for years. I mean, I got saved like 20, 25 years ago. But um, at that point, you know, a lot of what I heard, heard was like Romans, you know, all of sin, the wages of sin is death. And, um, you know, the gospel in First Corinthians 15, you know, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, but the, the term Messiah, as somebody from a, you know, Gentile European background, almost seems kind of foreign to me, and I feel like it means something more. I don't know if it would mean more to a Jewish person, maybe, or um, or what, but I feel like believing, like John chapter 20, you know, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the, the Christ or the Messiah in my version, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, to me, there's just something that seems different about identifying with a Messiah as opposed to uh, that gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. So I guess what is the what really is a Messiah and does it have a different meaning to a Jewish person than to a Gentile? Great question, Jim. Thank you. Well, Messiah and Christ are the same thing. The word Christ means anointed one. And the Old Testament pro, pro, uh, prophesied that an anointed... And we talked about anointing earlier, the anointed one who would come to fulfill the promises made to David that you're going to have a son who's going to live forever and reign over everything forever. The anointed one, a promised and prophesied in the Old Testament is Christ. So that's that's my take. And what is Messiah? Is that more? Christos is the Greek word. Messiah, is that based more on the Hebrew? Uh, I would assume so. I th- and, and I think with the anointed one, there's sort of a sense of a deliverer who has come, somebody mm-hmm. who will mm-hmm. rescue or free. save and, and set the yeah. people free. And, and I think to Jim's question, 
from a Jewish standpoint, clearly in the Old Testament, they probably would have anticipated that the Messiah was somebody who was going to free them from earthly oppression Political. and once again set up the, the Jewish kingdom of Israel and, and have their seat in Jerusalem where they would rule and reign, right? Yep. And that yep. was the idea. And part of why, understandably, the Jewish people missed that Jesus was the Messiah because he kept doing everything upside down compared mm-hmm. to that. Although, and, right. though someday he will do exactly he that. He will do exactly that. And, and from a Gentile standpoint, and I think what, the, what they miss is they didn't see that what the deliverer was going to do was to deliver us all from the power and the bondage to sin. And and that would be first, uh, it would be including both Jews and Gentiles. And so for a Gentile like us and like our listener, Jim, there is a Messiah figure that we've been delivered from the power of sin Mm -hmm. in our life. And thus the community of Jews and Gentiles can live together. It's not a political or an earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom of the heavens that now exists on earth and the people who participate in it, Jew and Gentile, have given their lives to the deliverer who has delivered them from sin. Yep. Interestingly, you still have Orthodox Jews today that are looking for the right. Messiah. Exactly. And uh, I remember being at a synagogue years ago. I was there as a speaker. Can you imagine that? Mm. But it was interesting. I, I was speaking, and um, it was very Orthodox, and a pregnant woman walked in. And I saw many of the rabbis bow because they, this could be the potential Messiah. Huh. There was that, still that fervency about it. But when you go to Mary, when she's confronted by the angel and said, you're going to have a son, you shall give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right. And that's really what the name Jesus means. And so you put Jesus with anointed one, our Messiah. The Messiah was what the people were expecting in terms of the whole culture being turned upside down. And, and Jesus does that, but he does it now through his people rather than just as a revolutionary. Right. And so uh, that's why he kept telling everybody, Shh, don't tell anybody who I am for right now. Because they had the wrong idea. Wrong understanding. Of, and, you know, there's t- the Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah is going to do two things. One is he is going to conquer his enemies and rule over the world and save the Jews. But the second thing it says he's going to do is suffer, Isaiah 53. So he does two things. He's victorious and he suffers. When Jesus was born, the Jews had just focused on the victorious part. So when he died on the cross, that can't be him because he died. Right. And and so my, my point here is, look how wrong we got the first coming of Christ. And I get so nervous when I, I listened this week to a, a second coming radio show, and these people were so sure how this is going to pan out and how the rapture happens first and then... And and I'm sorry, you cannot be dogmatic on the second coming. Yes, it's going to happen. He's going to return, raise the dead, judge the world. But you cannot... uh, I, I think those people are just going to be blown away by how different it is than the way they thought, like the first century Jews were. Well, unfortunately, the way people are caught up in the second coming today, too much of the teaching is divisional. It's not uniting. It's not pulling Christians together. It's like, are you a premillennialist? Mm-hmm. How about an amillennial? Mm-hmm. You know, are you a preterist or whatever <laughs> terminology you want to use? And as a result, people get divided over that, and they don't even go to church with one another. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, we're talking the same Savior. We're talking the same person, oh, Jesus. Our, and, and Tom, I went to a church that's a great church, and I looked through their statement of faith. We believe in the pre-tribulation or after the church. I thought, wait a minute. So I have to be I have to believe in that to be a, a, a member here, and I don't know if they would insist on it. But let's agree on the basics of the second coming and not make the details a matter of membership. You know? Well, and when you don't know your church history, you don't understand premillennialism. And I'm not saying I'm throwing it out. I'm saying it's one of many pictures. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, it's only existed for 150 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. For all the years <laughs> before that, nobody believed in that yeah. way. And so a couple a few days ago, I. After listening to the Second Coming radio show, I'm thinking, okay, what does the 70 weeks in Daniel mean? 
So I went to my ESV study Bible, and I read through it. There are three different interpretations of what those 70 weeks are. And I, that's why I love the ESV study Bible. It gave you all three views. It was objective, and it didn't claim it's got to be this way, you know. So Funny you would say that, Tom. I just had a, a listener say, what are your takes on the ESV translation? It's very good. It's mm-hmm. one of the best it, yeah, out there. That and the NASB are the two best, most literal translations. And what I like about it is that, you know, in the last hundred years, we've uncovered a lot of manuscripts of the New Testament right. or portions around the world. And the ESV is probably the one translation that gets closest to the original manuscripts as possible. Uh, the, I mean, they all do, but this is one of the better ones. And so... I know I use it, although I probably, when I preach and teach, I'll be honest, I probably use 10 different translations, and I use the Greek too. And you guys mentioned the, the idea of study notes. I just think if you want to be a student of the scriptures, it's such a great way to start. I mean, it's if you wonderful. don't want to dive into some of the more difficult commentaries and some of what's there, mm-hmm. get a Bible with study notes. And in some of the maps and the geography, the whole thing, the Bible starts coming to life when you have those kinds yeah. of tools at your disposal. Amen. Right. Here's an interesting question just came in from Mike. Uh, talk about how to exercise a spirit from a newly bought home. Thanks. Well, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. Good thing I'm not answering it. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a thought. I actually have a thought, yeah, but I'll let go you ahead. guys go. Go ahead, Bill. Give us your thought. Yes. Come on. Well, you, you enter a, a home that's been lived in. You don't know what's going on right. in the home. Right? right. You don't know what kind of sinfulness is or what kind of traditions have taken place in that home. Here's something you can do. You can you can have communion in that home. You yeah. can take the bread and wine and consecrate it and offer it and also then anoint the door with oil in the that's name of the done. Lord. And that way, that would override any pagan sinful activity that's going on in the home. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said that because we've done that very thing in a home oh, that cool. we bought. Sure. Yeah, we walked around to the different thresholds and the doorposts and the outside of the home. And, you know, it, we don't want to try to be magic. It's nothing about that. It simply is acknowledging that we want God's presence to fill this place. And, uh, and this is, you know, these symbolism things that we do are simply external symbols of a, of a, a non-visible reality to which we are attending. I mean, we claim to be in relationship with a non-visible being, mm-hmm. and yet that expresses itself in the visible world in certain times. And we don't want to be hokey pokey or hocus pocus about it, but, but there is power in this. And the scriptures clearly teach that we can do these sorts of things. It's interesting. We're playing baseball it's kind of strange right with nobody there do you see the virtual audience oh yeah no, oh yeah, man yeah. they even got the sounds down <laughs> but what i find interesting about it is you can pick up a baseball bat and if you don't use it right you can beat somebody with it and really hurt them but in somebody else's hands who's a, a really good hitter he can hit a home run and win a game yeah it really comes back to whose hand is on that house and that's why when you anoint a house, you anoint it in the name of Jesus, or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the oil. Because what you're saying is the any authority that was here ahead of time or any misuse of this house ahead of time no longer has power over any of us because it's now under the power of Jesus. And I've done that in quite a few homes. And I don't think it's anything magical or mystical in that sense. It's just declaring this home no longer belongs and, to the past. And, you know, I've had people too, Pastor Brock, I just bought a house. Would you come and pray over it? And so I have. We go mm-hmm. from room to room. And, Lord, if there's anything from the evil one in the name of Jesus Christ, we cast it out of and away from this house. Yeah. And I think that's all fine. But I got to be honest, is any of that in the New Testament? In the New Testament, people are demon-possessed. Yes. I don't know about a house getting demons cast out of it. You know, this, some of this might be a little more Amityville horror than New Testament. I don't think anything's <laughs> wrong with doing it. Prayer is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I you just I don't, I don't like it when we do stuff that's not biblical, you know. And, well, in, yeah, yeah, in one sense, though, it is biblical because they anointed the, the vessels in the temple when they yeah. first put the vessels in there. They, they anointed a variety of instruments they used for the Lord. Now, I'm with you. 
I don't want to get carried away because I've dealt with a lot of demonic, and it's usually people. It's not buildings. It's not whatever. Um, but there is a little bit of a hint there, but eh, I, you know, I wouldn't teach it. No. There, there's a difference. I don't get up and teach it on Sunday morning. we got to anoint your house before you go in there. But it will talk about people that are sometimes very hurt or whatever need to be prayed over. And for I don't know, reason. do you guys agree with me on this? I don't believe in ghosts. I believe mm-hmm. when you die, you're in heaven or hell. I don't think ghosts are on earth floating around. I do believe in demons that can masquerade as ghosts. Yes. So sometimes when people think I've got a ghost in my house, it ain't a ghost. It's not Uncle Jude, Jude that died three years ago. It's a demon. And I, I do think there are demons out there and well, angels. You know. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I've never studied the passage. I think it's in Matthew 27 where it talks about uh, at the moment of Jesus's death that there was tombs that were broken open and mm-hmm. the people were appeared among I many. Yeah, and I, and I don't. I'm not saying that that's necessarily ghost bound, but I I find it pretty interesting that there's many religions that prior to a Christian influence some of the main uh, ideas and practices of a of what's called an indigenous or an original religion in a country is called shamanism, and yes. and one of the hearts of shamanism is to release people into the afterlife. So if if you travel to places like Scotland or some other places in Europe that were deeply affected by the plague, for example, some of the original religious practitioners uh, saw people that uh, they thought they had been they had died in such horrific circumstances that they needed to be fully released in the afterlife because ghosts were a pretty common idea in those cultures. So I don't know how to appropriate all of it. The the scriptures are a very supernatural text, but, but I agree with you that, you know, I'm not going to watch ghost hunter on, you know, some, some cable channel and and believe that that's true. But, but I do wonder about the supernatural influences that are around us. So I love Mexico. I go there on vacation. It's cheap and it's fun, but you go on these tours and on the day of the dead, these heavily Catholic Mexicans yeah. uh, set out a meal for their dead relatives to come eat. And I said, yeah, but they don't really believe that happens, do they? Oh, yes, oh, sure. they do. Yeah, the movie Coco was all about that. Yeah, yeah. and so it just, you know, we need to be careful about that yeah. stuff. Agreed. Okay. Here's a question. Um, I, I'm stuck on the unforgettable sin. As I've told you before, I'm born again uh, through and through, but I've blasphemed God. As a born-again Christian, how do I know that I'm really forgiven for that? unforgivable sin. Don't you guys think, I mean, to be an unforgivable sin is to, is to just put your, your heart or your hands to what your heart is saying, meaning I'm going to turn my back for good. This is it. It's one thing to maybe be angry with God and to shout at God and be frustrated with God. I don't know what this person means by blaspheming God exactly, but, but clearly the scriptures are filled with people in scripture that do get angry. And the, the Psalms are filled with that kind oh, of language. And, and, but that's very different than saying, I am going to turn. That's it. Uh, I, you know, I, I would be curious more about what the listener means by this. Well, you know, go, go ahead, Tom. Tom. Well, I'm just going to say that the it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right. in particular. Because Jesus said, you can say a word against the Son of Man, you'll be forgiven, but not if you blaspheme or speak evil of the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean if I say a sentence that curses the Holy Spirit, I've lost my eternal salvation? I don't think so, because um, it's, it is a whole lifestyle thing. And, you know, it. Uh, one thing I've heard said, and I think it makes sense, if you're afraid you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't you done haven't, it. Because yeah. heart, people's heart gets so hard after they blaspheme the Spirit, they could care less if they blaspheme mm-hmm. the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and there, was, there was a website, did you see this about a few years ago, where people could go to the website to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Oh, I heard and, about and, that. and teenagers were going there. Oh, oh, yuck, that's yuck. horrible. Yeah, like officially going on record that you're doing it. Right. That's wow. crazy. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. More Guide Talk. Let me know if you've got a question. Hey, by the way, thanks for all the great questions that are coming in. These are wonderful. And you can call and talk to us if you like, or you can send me a text. 
Either way, we'd love to hear from you. 877-9-3-3-2-4-8-4. And we even have fun during the break. <laughs> we do. We're still laughing. All right, uh, Tom Parrish, I think you had an illustration you wanted yeah. to add to that unforgiv- unforgettable, forgivable sin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. A friend of mine who was in India, he spent most of his career in India, told a story. And he said uh, this was secondhand on his part, but he said it came from reliable sources. During Right before World War II, there was a um, uh, Hindu, a high-rank Hindu, who went up to one of the missionaries and says, I've read your Bible. And her Bible says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I don't have the Holy Spirit, but watch me. Jesus is Lord. Guy says, stop. He says, come out here on my balcony. They walked on the balcony. He says, everybody, everybody, come here, come here. All of you people, come here. I want you to hear what this Hindu has to say. And the guy ran out. And I think when we're talking about the, the mm-hmm. unforgivable sin, what we're really talking about here is if this gentleman can proclaim the name of Jesus in front of his family Agreed. and in front of others in an appropriate way, then he hasn't fallen into the unforgivable sin because the demons will not pronounce the name of Jesus. They do not want him But, you know, I, 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 you have too, I'm sure. Through the years you get this question, somebody will come to you and they're afraid. I said this about the Holy Spirit. Did I commit the unforgivable I sin? I and I think we just got to, the unforgivable sin is a big, total turning your back. It's a lifestyle like the Pharisees were. Cont- the Pharisees are the ones who blaspheme the Spirit. Right. So we just got to comfort people's conscience. And I think the devil loves to condemn people over stuff that, are, you know, how he, does, how he does that. So, All right. I've got a question, a comment from a listener. And in our small group, we talked about the law. It was talked about in a way where we could never fulfill the law. And that's why we need Jesus. Right. Even though he's given us a new law, like love your neighbor as yourself, the sense I got from the group was that no matter how hard we try, we'll never be able to keep any of it. Right. Well, that's not quite. No, what do you mean, any of it? Yeah, well, we, we'll keep it. In we the fulfill. Sense of perfection. We fulfill. Uh, what does it say in Romans uh, eight? The we fulfill the, the righteous requirement now is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I don't do it perfectly. I sin every day, but I'm a lot better than I would be without Christ. That's for sure. Oh my. I mean, you think of it this way. If if I keep going up to the, as a kid, I've got grandkids. They go up to get water, right? They take it up to the refrigerator, get the water. And because they can only push so long, it gets half full. Then they'll go, Grandpa, can you finish it? And so I'll go over and I'll fin- fill it up. That's what it means when we're in Christ. We don't perfectly love others the way Jesus does, even as believers. We don't perfectly do these things. But the measure we have to do what he commands, he fills up the rest mm-hmm. within us. Yeah. Where the unbeliever doesn't have that power. There's no filling. It's always a half-empty class. I, 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 I had a, I, we had a guest preacher at my church recently, and he's extremely Lutheran. And he got up and he preached on this truth that we cannot keep God's law. That's why we need Christ. But he said... You know, sometimes we have this, his point was this, sometimes we have this notion that we're going to get better. Well, of course we know that's ridiculous. We're never going to get better. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Doesn't the Holy Spirit make some difference in our lives? Well, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think, for, I mean, the, the witness in the New Testament is clearly that the fruit of abiding in the vine, that being Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, is an uh, authentic love and joy and peace in these things. And into the listener's question, uh, yes, the Old Testament law, Paul is pretty clear in Romans that the law has been given to as sort of a schoolmaster for us. It, it, was, it was a guardian of sorts to keep us from going completely off the rails in the Old Testament, but it also served to expose the need for the grace that we have to have because we can't keep the law in its fullness. Mm-hmm. And so thus the law should drive us to bend our knee to ask for the grace to come. And, and as we do, and we begin to abide in the vine and we're the branches, we begin to bear much authentic kinds of fruit. Now, are we going to be perfect? No, but we can, I think, to your point, Tom, that you referenced, we can begin to fulfill mm-hmm. the righteous requirements of the law, not through our own efforts, but because in this mysterious, though very real co-agency that we experience with the spirit who begins to work in and through us and begins to sanctify us. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, here's another question. In Revelations 5, 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is that referring to Jesus? So, yeah, yes. I think so. And so. why the image of a lion, which is at times so frightening and deadly? Because he is. He's both. And this is the mistake we make. We have created a Sunday school Jesus that only holds lambs. Yeah. This is a, a Jesus who is also the king of the universe. And it's the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And my attitude has always been, don't mess with Jesus. If, if you think Satan's bad, you do not want to meet Jesus on Judgment Day if you're opposed to him. Because he is, that's what Hebrews 10 says, you know, it is a terrible thing to fall, to fall into the hands, hands of the living, of living God. God. Yeah. But we created such a grace-filled picture of Jesus that, I mean, he wouldn't condemn anybody. Yeah. But the Bible is just doesn't say that. He will condemn. He is the final word. But, you know, Tom, my loving Jesus would never send anyone to hell. And then you say, okay, can I show you the verse? Depart from me, you wicked, into yep. the eternal fire prepared. Yep. That's coming out of the mouth of Jesus in the, in the Gospels. And I usually ask people, when did Jesus give you that memo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, too, because they're preceding his opening of the scroll. There's this great weeping in heaven that there isn't anybody worthy to right. open the scroll. And, and the symbolism of the opening of the scroll is to set loose the events in motion that we talked about earlier, that the that the new kingdom is now coming, the king is returning. And, and John, hearing this weeping in heaven, that there is nobody that could open that scroll, and suddenly uh, the lion begins to come, and, and they see the one who is worthy, who opens the scroll. It does speak to a kinship, to a lordship of somebody who's coming with his kingdom and is worthy to set those events in motion so that all things will be set right. Well, you know, mm. the Old Testament says we're to fear and love God. Right. And we always try to tamper down the fear. I... Don't think we fully understand what that means in the Bible. What I understand is don't mess with Jesus. Don't mess with God the Father. But love him because he is love. But don't think you can get away with it, and he's not going to see anything. And he is both lion and lamb. I mean, that's the amazing yeah. thing about him. He, he, he both, uh, and he's a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. He doesn't stand apart from us and is just lording over us. He is in the muck with us as he is also the king with authority over all things. Here's a question from a listener, awfully vulnerable. The question is, as a liar, will God listen to my prayers? It depends if you've repented or not. I mean, I think we've all told lies. But have you said, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me? If the Lord leads you to go back to the person you lied to, I don't know that he always does, but if he leads you to go back and say, look, I'm sorry, I told a lie. But if you if you are living in your lies, you're not repenting, uh, the Bible does say in, in uh, Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. 
Yeah, but, but you know, and you're so right, Tom. But if you are then a person who's willing to say, I do, I am struggling with this sin, that's where the beautiful promises that Paul says right. things like where sin abounds, grace abounds all the yes. more. And yes. and God meets us with grace in the midst of our ongoing um, depravity, in the midst of our ongoing difficulties mm-hmm. in our life. If we The difference between a soft heart and a hard heart is one who's willing to stay repentant in the journey as they're walking through the struggles with yeah. sin. Yeah. A hard heart is somebody who's embraced that hardness mm-hmm. and is walking away. So, of course, God, in the softness of our heart, even if we're dealing with an ongoing pattern of behavior, of course, he hears our prayers. Hard hearts. That's an interesting topic. I'd like to talk about that sometime. Yeah, it's a good one. It is uh, something we have to be very careful. We have to guard our hearts, don't we? For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. All they, the time. Yeah, they harden so quickly, don't they? They do. They really do. Yeah, and it, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's the continental drift. All of a sudden, you don't realize <laughs> you're... Yeah, you don't wake uh, up one day usually and just say, oh, yeah. gosh, I can't wait to have a hard heart today. But, <laughs> right. but you know, uh, you know, you begin to drift that way, and yeah. pretty soon you're like, gosh, and, I, you know, it's not soft. It's the natural that. part of us. Yeah. It's who I we heard, are. I heard a sermon by the pastor, and he said, you know, if I don't take a shower regularly, my old self takes over. Yeah, again, right. And I, I start to stink and have B.O., so I have to regularly take a shower <laughs> Or the old self takes over. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, that's the old hard heart. If I don't regularly pray, read the Bible, take communion, have Christian fellowship, the old Tom Brock takes over again. Yeah. Sure. And Our- he stinks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's what's going to happen. That wraps up our time, uh, our one. On a now, high point. On a high point. But right now, I don't know when we come back if Guy Talk is going to be continued with another special guest, Todd Mulligan, or if it's just going to be me and Todd. I don't know yet. Oh, this is high drama. It you is. can do with this whatever you want, Bill. Yeah, okay, we it's trust you. totally high drama. So we will uh, <laughs> we will find out in about three or four minutes what the uh, result is. It's either going to be thirty more minutes of guy talk with Todd, who's a counselor, psychologist. Have, have would people, you, would have you people would... call in and vote? <laughs> yeah, you can you can text right now. Uh, more guy talk or just me and Todd doesn't matter. <laughs> Given I, that, I think I, I know what you're asking. I'm, I'm open to anything and. Uh, by, let's see, uh, five minutes from now, we'll have a decision. So text uh, more guy talk or just Todd. Let me know. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.